John chapter 10 to begin with this morning and uh, for those of us that may be visiting today let me just share that um, uh, last week I started a series which we are calling Your Helper, the Holy Spirit. Introducing you to the role and the, the, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. See, we worship a God in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Co-equal, co-eternal. Now we know that the person of the Father is in heaven, seated upon the throne. And we know that the person of the Son is also in heaven, seated at his right hand. In fact, the Bible says that the heavens have received him until the restitution of all things, until the time that Jesus comes back and reigns over the earth. But the Holy Spirit is with us. The Holy Spirit has been poured out upon the church. And the Holy Spirit indwells every single believer. You have a person living inside you. A divine person. Now, of course, it's only natural and obvious that, that we would want to develop a relationship with the Holy Spirit, that we would want to know Him and, and learn to be intimate with Him and to enjoy fellowship with Him. And, of course, the key to that is, is learning to hear His voice, to know when He's speaking to us, because any kind of relationship is built on communication, and communication is two ways. And we speak often to God, but we need to learn to listen, to hear His voice, to know when He is speaking to us. Now, in the Old Testament, God said to Israel over 100, oh, sorry, 1,000 times, He said these words, Hear, O Israel. Hear, O Israel. And so, for Israel to hear the voice of God was normal. Then when you come to the Gospels, God said, concerning Jesus, this is my beloved son, hear him. And now that we are in the era of the Spirit, the era of the Gospel, Jesus says, he that has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. And so hearing the voice of the Spirit is the norm in the Christian life. At least that's what Jesus intends for it to be. And uh, we want to talk about that. You know, sometimes people say, you know, I don't hear God speaking to me. Well, that may be so, but I have to say that the problem is not with the transmitter, it's probably with the receiver. You know, you've got a radio at home and uh, you, you can turn that radio on, but if it's not tuned in to the right frequency, you won't pick up that station, even though it's transmitting. And so we need to learn to tune in to the voice of the Holy Spirit. And I want to share just briefly in this service how we can learn to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit. Some practical uh, information from the Word of God about learning to hear the voice of the Spirit. The first thing I want to say is this, that we learn to recognize God's voice by experience. I mean, some of these things are so obvious that they hardly bear stating. But we, we learn to hear the voice of the Spirit by experience. I love the story of Samuel in the Bible. You know, the Bible says that when Samuel was born and, uh, you know, he was a miracle child. His name Samuel means asked of God. 
and, and, and uh, his mother gave him back to the Lord. And so he went to live in the temple and he served the priest, Eli. And the Bible says that in those days, the word of God was rare. Not many people were hearing the voice of God. In fact, the word of God was not being spoken because of the spiritual declension of those times. But there was a time when young Samuel went to bed one night. You know the story. And he heard his voice being called, Samuel, Samuel. And he got up and he ran into Eli's room and he said, what do you want? He said, I don't want anything. He said, but you called me. He said, I didn't call you. Go back to bed. So he went back to bed. And then a few minutes later, Samuel, Samuel. And he jumps out of bed, goes running into the room. He said, what do you want? You did call me. He said, I didn't call you. Go back to bed. And so the third time the voice came, Samuel, Samuel. And he went running into Eli. He said, you did call me. And, and Eli realized what was happening. He said, that's the Lord speaking to you. When he speaks again, say, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. Now, he was hearing a voice, but he didn't know whose voice it was. And I've got to say that one of the things that I find common in, 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 in the Christian life concerning learning to hear the voice of God is that many Christians hear a voice they're just not sure. Is this God? Is this the voice of God? Because we can confuse voices. This is what this passage is about. John chapter 10. In verse 2, we'll just go to verse 2 because of time. Jesus says, but he who enters as the sheepfold by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. Okay, so he's talking about the relationship between the shepherd, Jesus, and the sheep, that's us. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice. And he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. Now the three things in that verse I want to draw your attention to. Number one, it says that the sheep do hear the voice of the shepherd. That's the norm in the Christian life. It's normal for you to hear the voice of the shepherd. Amen? And furthermore, it goes on to say that he calls his sheep by name. In other words, the voice that you will hear is not a general voice like anybody out there listening. No, it's an intimate voice. It's, it, it's got your name on it. God speaks to you because he knows all about you. Amen? God knows more about you than you know about yourself. I mean, he even knows the hairs on your head. That's, that's easier for some others, but, but I don't know how many hairs are on my head. But he knows. He knows the thoughts even before the words are in my mouth. He knows what I'm thinking. He knows my down-sitting, my uprising. And, and he comes to me with his voice and it's, it's just for me. Just as he comes to you and he has a personal, intimate relationship with you. And then he goes on to say in verse 3 that... He leads them out. The purpose of the voice is to lead you in the right way. So we need this relationship with God so that we might know how we are to walk and how we are to live in this life. And in verse 4 he says, And when he brings out his own sheep, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. See, there comes a time, friends, in the Christian life when you know that voice. There are, there are times when you, you hear a voice and, and people are purporting to speak in the name of the Lord. And you say, that's not the shepherd's voice. I know the shepherd's voice. That is not it. Because you know that voice. You're familiar 
with the voice of the shepherd. And we're going to talk a little bit about that under the third point that I want to share towards the end of this message. How you can learn what the shepherd's voice is like and how you will hear it. And then in verse 5 he says, Yet they will by no means follow a stranger, but will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. And I guess that's the, the key of the Christian life. You know, they, they reckon that those that deal with um, fighting the crime against counterfeit money, the way those people become expert in learning to detect counterfeit money is by becoming so familiar with the real, the genuine article. They study the real, the true, so much that the moment a counterfeit note comes along, they pick it up instantly because they know the real. It's not like they're studying the counterfeit because <laughs> there are so many counterfeits, but they, they, they know the real. And that's what Jesus is saying. Now, the second point is this. This is a very important point. I'm going to take a little bit of time on this point, but it is so important. We will only know the voice of the Holy Spirit if we live as sons of God. Many Christians are not living in their sonship rights. They're not relating to God on the basis of being sons of God. And as a result of that, they, they don't know the voice of the shepherd. Let's just go to verse chapter 15 of John's Gospel. Chapter 15 and verse 15. Jesus said this, towards the end of his ministry with his disciples, he says this, No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all things that I heard from my father I have made known to you. See, there's a huge difference between a servant and a friend. And the difference is in the degree of intimacy. Would you agree with that? A servant is not close to his master. But a friend is very close. A friend is taken into confidence. You share secrets with a friend. You share plans. You have the plans for your life with a friend. You share openly and freely and, and intimately with a friend. But a, secret know, uh, sorry, a servant knows nothing of that kind of relationship. Tell them I'm busy just at the moment. Um, <laughs> So, you know, <laughs> a servant, see, we, we, we don't live in a culture where households have servants, not, not, not very much, you know, we're not familiar with that, but when you go, when you travel to some of the third world countries, you know, you, you observe this, because we've stayed in homes where, where they have servants, and a servant does not usually speak until he's spoken to. He doesn't chat away. He doesn't talk about himself. He doesn't get familiar with his master. He doesn't ask personal details of his master. These are huge no-nos. In fact, the servant would probably not even speak unless he's spoken to or unless he has to ask a question relating to some aspect of his service. And we've seen this. We've observed this. I've been to different countries where they have servants and, and this is the way they operate. And the place of the servant in the home is only secured by the quality of his service. So all through the day, 
the servant is wondering, I hope I'm doing it right. I hope I haven't done anything wrong. I hope this is good enough. That's the mentality of a servant because if, he, if his quality of service breaks down in any way, he's out the door and someone else is in to replace him. But the son never goes through that kind of anguish. A son is in the home and his place is not based on the quality of his service but his position as a son, which never changes in the home. And he sits on the table and he chats away with his father and he jokes and he gets intimate and, and, and his father begins to share his plans and brings him into involvement in the household and so on. A completely different relationship. Now sadly, friends, some Christians relate to God on the basis of service, obedience. And they believe that it's the quality of their obedience and, and the level of their obedience that gives them the right to be in the household. In fact, you know, I don't want to get into arguing over doctrine, but I tell you what, I've, I've finished with this doctrine of can you lose your salvation? Some Christians are still arguing about can you lose your salvation because they don't understand what it means to be a son of God. If you would kick your son out of your house, well, you may because of bad behavior, but he's still a son. And in your heart, that's how you'll always see him, my son. And, and, and if not, well, God is bigger than that. Can a woman forsake the child of a womb? Yes, they may on the odd occasion. You know, you get some bizarre story about a father throwing his child off a bridge, as we heard the other day, which kind of just blows us all away. There may be a random case of that sort of thing. He says, yet will I not forget you. I will never do that to you because my thoughts are not your thoughts. Don't ever bring me down to your level. I am your heavenly father. And there's a great deal of intimacy. And the more we understand that we are children of our Heavenly Father, the more we will expect to hear the voice of God and enjoy hearing that voice. John Wesley freely tells about a dramatic crisis in his life when he exchanged the faith of a servant for the faith of a son. And I guess that if we were to give testimonies today, many here would also share a time when that revelation came to us. Hey, you know, our relationship is not based on our doing, but on our being. Amen? Now, let's turn together to Galatians, where we can just see this, because um, I want to share a very important point here re relating to this whole subject of hearing the voice of the Holy Spirit. In Galatians chapter 5 and verse 18, we read these words. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. So if you are led by the Spirit, you are living as a son. If you are living as a servant, you're living by legalism. You're not led by the Spirit. And here's the point I want to make. The further you are away from the Spirit, the more you will behave like a servant. The further you are from hearing the Spirit's voice, the more you will behave like a servant. The more you will need people to tell you what to do. 
the more you will ask for the rules and the regulations. What do I do here? What should I do? Now listen, friends, when we were first Christians, we asked a lot of questions. Do you know what concerns me? is that down the track, you know, when people have been Christians 10, 20 years, they're still asking, what should I do here? What should I do there? Because there's very little intimacy with the Spirit. They need the rules. They need someone to tell them what to do. Uh, Ken, you know, uh, we've got to give to God. Uh, what percentage should we give? Just tell me what to do and I'll do it. So you tell them, or, you know, some pastors will give a percentage. And, and then they say, now, is that on my gross or is that on my net? <laughs> You know, kind of like every detail I've got to know. Um, <laughs> you, you, know you know what sort of thing I'm saying? What do I do here? What, what should I do here? Is this okay? As a Christian, is it okay for me to drink a glass of wine or, or should I not do that? You know, give me the rules. Tell me. Write the list out of the do's and the don'ts and the things that I've got to do because there's no intimacy of the Spirit. People cannot be led by the Spirit in these things. And so they need rules, even though there's not rules about those things in the Bible. But the creations will, uh, sorry, the Christians will create the rules. So we invent rules to live the Christian life by, because we're, we're, we're that far away from the intimacy of the Holy Spirit. If you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. And in Romans 8 verse 14, Paul says this, As many as are led by the Spirit, these are the sons of God. Hallelujah. The Holy Spirit came to help us to make that transition from servant mentality to son mentality. Now, in this epistle to the Galatians, Paul uses quite, quite a beautiful analogy that, that everyone in that time at least will be very, very familiar with, and it was this. In every, in every um, well-to-do home, Greek and Roman especially, um, there was one of these servants in the home called a pedagogue. Okay? And, and, and if somebody had a child, he wasn't actually called a son until he came to a certain age. He was called a child. And so even though he was a son, he was not called a son until he reached that age. And then he was adopted into the family. Now we think of adoption as uh, taking a child that isn't your own. But back in those days, there was, a, there was a, a ceremony that marked the coming of age, where they passed from childhood to sonship. And until that age, though they were a son and therefore heir of the whole house, they lived as a servant. And they were under a pedagogue who was a household servant himself. And they had less rights than the servant himself. And the servant told them what to do. And, and gave them a lot of rules and regulations. We read about it in chapter 3. Chapter 3. Because see, what, what Paul says here is this. It's just like that during the era in which God's people were under the law. Right? Relates to that period of God's people under what we call the law. About 1,500 years, was it? They were under the law. And that's the way they related to God on the basis of law. In fact, when Moses went up into the mountain to receive the law, you know what they said to him? They said, we won't go before the Lord. You go before us and you come back and you tell us what to do and we'll do it. Just give us the laws. Just give us the rules. Okay, so they had a servant mentality and that was for that period of time. And it, it was depicted by this pedagogue who had 
a son or a child under his care and he told him, okay, tidy your room up. You've got to go to bed now. You've got to get up now. We're going to school now. Get yourself ready. Stop fooling around. All this sort of thing. And it was all rules and regulations. And, and uh, you know, the father had appointed the servant to do that role until the child came of age. And there was a certain time when that child came of age. Who remembers uh, when you were 21? What did you get? The key of the door. Now listen up, young people. I'm going back into the days when Methuselah was... <laughs> you know, this is how some of us were brought up, is that you did not get the key of the door until you were 21. Because when you were 21, that was like, okay, you're an adult now. You can decide for yourself. You're going to make your own decisions in life. You're not under our parental control. You're under your own self-control. And, and, you know, they had a party to celebrate. You're 21. You had cards that were in the shape of a key because it symbolizes you had the key of the door. 21. Then I think it went down to 18. I think it's about four now, isn't it? Something like that. Um, but anyway, I'm not going to comment on that. But, back, but that's how it was back in those days of pause. Now, in, in, a, in a Greek household, it was 18. When they came to the age of 18, that was the defining moment when you passed from servant to son. In a Jewish home, it was 12. And still is today. In uh, a Roman, did I say Roman? In a Greek home, no, in a Roman home, it was anywhere between 14 and 17, thereabouts, whenever the father felt the child was ready to take on that responsibility. But the point is this, there was a defining moment, a time to celebrate, and it was marked out by some celebration. Often uh, there would be some little ceremony, like the boy might bring his ball and give it to the god Apollo, and the girl might bring her doll and give it to the god Apollo, and they were saying, we're putting away childish things. We're now adults. We're taking responsibility for our lives. Now, Paul says there was a defining moment when we passed, God's people passed from being servants relating to God on the basis of servant mentality to relating to God on the basis of sons. Let's read about it. It says in verse, chapter 3, verse 23, But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law. See, just as the kid was kept under control by the pedagogue, so we were kept under guard by the law. Kept for the faith which would afterwards be revealed. Therefore the law was our tutor, that's that word pedagogue, to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor or a pedagogue. Now chapter 4, verse 1. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave. Though he is a master of all, he's going to inherit everything one day. But he's treated like a slave. See, he's operating on the basis of commands. But he's under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the Father. Even so, we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, 
born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. Isn't that beautiful? That was the defining moment when God's people related to him not on the basis of commands and rules and regulations, do this, do that, but on the basis of intimacy and relationship. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son to redeem us from the law that we might receive the adoption, being placed as sons in the family of God, that we might know that wonderful, beautiful intimacy. Then he goes on to say this, verse 6, And because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Now, I don't know if you notice, in verse 4, God says, uh, Paul says, God sent forth his Son. And then in verse 6, he says, God sent forth his Spirit. Now there's a different reason. When God sent his Son, it's so that we might receive the position of sons. To redeem us out of the law, out of servitude, and come into sonship. Now when he sent forth the Spirit, it was not so that we might receive the position of sons, we had that from Jesus, but that we might receive the experience of being sons. God has sent forth the Spirit of his Son into your hearts. The Spirit not of just a son, but his son into your hearts. In other words, this is so daring, I hardly say it, but, but this is what Paul is saying here. God wants you to feel just like Jesus in his presence. No formality there. Incredible intimacy. God has sent forth the spirit of his son. See, Jesus related to God as father. You know the first recorded saying of Jesus was about his father. Didn't you know that I should be about my father's business? Remember he said that when he got lost? and Because uh, see, then he was coming into that, that age. Did you not know that I should be about my father's business? The last recorded statement of Jesus on the cross, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. And, and Jesus often used the term Father. Very rare do you read that in the Old Testament. Very, very rare do you hear God being referred to as Father. It's there, but it's very rare. You know, like for example, Psalm 103 says, Like as a father pities his children, so the Lord pities them that fears him. But mainly, it is not that relationship. But Jesus brought us into You know, sometimes you get Jehovah's Witnesses knock on your door. And uh, one of the questions they usually ask when they discover you're a Christian, why don't you call God Jehovah by his name? Well, number one, that's not his name, actually. If you want to get pedantic about it, it's actually more closer to Yahweh than it is Jehovah. But, you know, you don't want to get into arguments about that. But I usually say, well, I don't call him, um, uh, you know, Jehovah, because Jesus said, when you pray, say, our Father. He's my Father. What about you? Do you have that relationship with him? And obviously they don't. They're relating to him on, okay, we've got the correct name. What, what do we call you? What do we call you? you know, what's, the, what's the command here? What are we going to do? Running around looking for the commands. What should we do here? What should we do? 
instead of having a relationship with the Heavenly Father, being led by the Spirit. You can say amen to that if you want. It's okay. I mean, you know. So apparently somebody last week when I was sharing about, um, uh, you know, I, I made a statement that, that the Bible never speaks about the spirit-controlled life. People use that term, spirit-controlled. Um, but it speaks about the spirit-led life. And apparently somebody said, and that's okay, somebody said, you know, but I want to be controlled by the Holy Spirit. But you know what, friends, God does not want to control you. The whole thing is that he did not create you. If he wanted to control you, he would have made you as an automaton, as a machine. He would have wound you up. He wound you up every day and just, off you go. Kind of, it's every pre-program, like a computer. We're not like this. This is the fascinating thing about the human life is that God has created us with a volition, with the, the power to choose. And all he wants is for you to choose to obey him because you love him. Amen? He doesn't want you to be controlled by bullies and, and uh, uh, warnings and threats and, and, and you know, fear manipulation and guilt manipulation, all that sort of stuff. He wants you out of a heart that's been set free, a heart that loves God, to choose to obey God. That's why this fruit of the Spirit is self-control. Amen? And that's the beauty of uh, the Christian life. Now... Um, I think I've shared this illustration before, but um, when we pastored in New Zealand, um, we planted several churches in the city of Christchurch. I think we planted about six or seven. And one of the churches that we planted in ourselves wanted to get together to do an outreach, have some special meetings. We got everything worked out, but we didn't know where we were going to have the meetings. I mean, as a pastor, I wanted them in my church building and he wanted them in his church building, you know, hometown advantage. You can understand that. And so we, didn't, we couldn't agree on that point. And do you know what he said? He said, well, let's pick straws. I said, you serious? He said, yeah, let's pick straws. I said, no. He said, yeah, it's in the Bible. I said, yeah, that's Old Testament. He said, no, the apostles did it. In Acts chapter 1, when they wanted to choose a replacement for Judas... They pick straws, they cast lots. And I kind of was troubled about this. I thought, it doesn't sound right, you know. But he was right, it's there in the New Testament. And it wasn't until some time later that it dawned on me that there's something unique about Acts chapter 1. You know, in Acts chapter 1, Jesus went and the Holy Spirit hadn't come. The Holy Spirit didn't come until Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 1, at the beginning, Jesus ascended. And they're there, and he's, you know what Jesus said? Don't do anything <laughs> till I come. Don't do anything. And so Peter had another one of his brilliant ideas. <laughs> you know, can't just do this, waiting, waiting. So let's, let's just kind of, let's choose a replacement for Judas, you know? And uh, they pick straws, and they pick this guy, I think his name was Matthias or something like that. Nobody ever heard of him again. <laughs> oh dear. Yeah, good one, Peter. Um, <laughs> you know, but when he comes, he will guide you into all truth. And you find that, you know, as you read the book of Acts, it's not really about the Acts of the Apostles, it's the Acts of the Holy Spirit. 
working through the apostles in the church. And, you know, they're waiting on God, and the Holy Spirit said, separate unto me Barnabas and Saul for the work that I've called them. And off they go on their missionary journey, and Paul's trying to go here, and the Spirit said, not there. So he goes here, and the Spirit says, not there. And he just waits until he hears a, a man from Macedonia saying, come over and help us. And they're getting guided by the Holy Spirit. Praise God. And that's how it is in the Christian life. You know, God leads us and guides us by His Spirit. I mean, most of what we need to know is in the Word of God. Amen? Thy Word is a lamp under my feet and a light under my path. But most of it is in terms of broad principles. For example, if you're single and you don't have the gift of celibacy, then God's will is for you to marry. Amen? Everybody say it. <laughs> so, I don't know. Um, okay. Now, but the question is, who? Who? <laughs> and I know there's a lot of people out there saying, I'm asking the same question. Who? <laughs> it's in details like that that the Holy Spirit leads us and guides us. <laughs> Don't come to me and ask me who. That's the whole point of what I'm trying to share with you. <laughs> I, I, I think I shared this story as well once with you. Uh, when, when we were pastoring in New Zealand, this lady came to me and she said, I've got, I've got a daughter living in Australia and I want to go and see her. And I've got the fear to get there, but I don't have the fear to get back. What should I do? I thought, yeah, here we go. Like, I was born in the night, but it wasn't last night, I can tell you. You know, she, she sort of get over there and get stuck, and like you said to come over here, you said that, you know. See, a lot of pastors want to be the big shot, and yeah, I've got the word of God for you, you know. This is what you've got to do, and uh, the Lord said to me, and the Lord, you know. Hey, you know, I said to her, why would the Holy Spirit tell me for you? Why would he do that? Does it make any sense? Why wouldn't he want you to hear his voice about your life so that you would know what... When I turned up Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, you know it very well. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed that you might prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God for your life. You've got to prove that for your life. I prove it for my life. You prove it for your life. I hear his voice for me. You hear his voice for you. Friends, if you don't live like that, if you, if you run around after prophets and people to tell you the will of God for your life, you will never develop intimacy, the intimacy that God wants you to enjoy as, as believers. Amen? And uh, a lot of Christians don't enjoy that. They're kept in that state. You know, Fancy being liberated from a pedagogue, someone who's bossy, telling you what to do, chucking the rules out all the time, and then you get free of that, and then you go back under that sort of thing. That's crazy. We were set free that we might enjoy intimacy and freedom and liberty to know the voice of God for ourselves. Okay, we better quickly move on because our time is going, but we'll come to the third point here. And, and the third point is this. That we become acquainted, acquainted, <laughs> we become acquainted with the voice of God as we become acquainted with the God of the voice. That's, that's, again, it's so obvious. Just five little practical things as we wind up. Just quickly, I'm not going to dwell on them. The first one is this. 
the Holy Spirit lives inside you. And so when he speaks, the voice will come from within. Amen? The Holy Spirit lives inside you. So when he speaks, the voice will come from within. I don't know how many people have come to me and they were very crystal clear about what they were meant to do. And then they heard a voice outside. Someone said, no, this is what you should be doing. Hey, what about the voice inside first? You know? How about learning to hear that voice and becoming confident in that voice? Otherwise, you'll get confused by conflicting voices. The second thing is this. The voice of God is a still, small voice. You know, again, a lot of Christians are looking for the spectacular. They really are just hoping an angel will appear before them. Or a prophet will pick them out of a meeting and say, Thus says the Lord. Um, it's, not the way it it's not the way it happens in, in your house, is it? I mean, when your mother tells you, I mean, as, as kids, when your mother tells you that your dinner was ready, she didn't burst into the room, do, do a cartwheel across the floor, a <laughs> couple of backflips and say, Dinner's ready! Well, my mother didn't anyway. And your dad didn't come in with a couple of sparklers in his hands and one, blowing one of those, you know, bedtime. I mean, that's not how it happens. It's just like we speak normally. It's a still, small voice. You know, so once I asked the question, how many people have heard the audible voice of God? And there was this lady there and she was a little bit, no, like, like to impress the rest of the, she was super spiritual and her hand shot up, you know, kind of looking around, you know, like I've heard the audible voice of God. I said, you know, it's probably because you were so far away from God. <laughs> it's like when, when your mother does come in and say, you know, dinner's ready. She says, dinner's ready. But if you're not listening, she says, turn that thing off and get around the table. You know, that's because you're not listening the first time. So she has to speak louder. Amen. And it's not a sign that you're spiritual. If you heard the audible voice of God or an angel came to tap you on the shoulder or uh, you, know, you, heard a, you were visited by a prophet or something like that. It's a still small voice. Number three, and this is the big point. If you miss everything else, get this. It's characterized by the peace of God. I love this about learning the voice of God. It's characterized by the peace of God. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 15 says, Let the peace of God rule in your hearts. That word means to arbitrate or to act as an umpire. You know, you've been watching sport on TV, maybe it's um, uh, rugby, rugby league, and, and somebody touches down. But yes, but was their foot over the line when that ball touched down? It happened so quick, they have to go to the, what they call it, the, the, the uh, not the third umpire, that's in the cricket. What's the other one? Video ref, that's right. And he makes the final call. It's either in or out. It's either a try or no try. Same with tennis, you know. Uh, they can challenge a point now, can't they? Up to was about two or three times a match or whatever. And, uh, uh, you know, it happens that quick. You think, was that in? I think, I think it might have been. So it goes to the umpire and he makes the ruling. In, out. Very clear, very decisive. And that's what the Holy Spirit does. When, when you're considering something or you're being challenged with something, you don't know whether it's true or not. It's not just about whether all the circumstances are falling into place. Sometimes that's not the time to move ahead. Just because your circumstances are right doesn't mean to say that's the will of God. 
You'll know by the peace of God. Because the Holy Spirit lives inside you. And the peace of God is a tangible thing. You either have it, and that's the green light, move ahead, or you don't have it, that's the red light, just hang on, don't go yet, you know? The peace of God will rule in your hearts. And number four, it's a gentle thing. The peace of God is gentle. The wisdom that is from above, says James, is first pure, then peaceable, gentle. It's not pushy. You know? Like, it doesn't come and urge you to make a decision now when you haven't had time to reason it, to process it, and to feel that peace of God. It's not pushy. Somebody said, I think it was Bob Mumford once says that God leads, but Satan pushes. And sometimes Christians can try to urge you to do things, push you, push you, push you. That's not the Holy Spirit. Then my job as a pastor to push you into anything. You know, you've got to be led by the Spirit. You've got to know in your heart, this is what God wants me to do. And then number five, lastly, check out the content. The content of what he's saying. Is it consistent with what God has said in, the word, in his word? For example, if you hear a voice and it's condemning you, you know that is not the voice of the Holy Spirit. There is no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. Now for some of us, it took a long while to realize that's not his voice. Out. We won't entertain it. Because, you know, it's not the voice of God. Check out the content. Is it consistent with what the Word of God says? I shared this story in closing, and uh, one of my favorite stories. Just prior to, to World War II, the King of England, I think it was Edward VIII at that time, and uh, he had a brother called Albert, who was a very nervous sort of person, fearful sort of person. And uh, he had a speech impediment. You know, his father was pretty hard on him. It's known, it's known that his father, I think he also was Edward, if I'm not mistaken, was very hard on him. And, uh, you know, he had what they called knock knees, and he put them in splints. He was left-handed, but he was forced to write with his right hand, and things like that. And it just made his condition worse. And he was so glad that he was the second brother because he would never be king, because his brother would be king. But if you know history, you know that his brother fell in love with a woman that was divorced twice, and the Prime Minister of Britain said, you can't marry her. So he said, well, then I'll abdicate. So he abdicated, and by default, his brother, whose name was changed, or one of his names was George, he became, that was his father's name, sorry, it was George. So he's named after his father, and he became King George VI. And he just spun out because he, he was a king and he couldn't speak without stuttering. And it was an embarrassment. And, and it was just one year before Britain went to war, before the Second World War. And he had to go, not only did he have to make public speeches, he had to go on the radio regularly to speak. And so he just spun out. And uh, you know what? It was actually an Australian that helped him. There was an Australian speech therapist in Harley Street, a Harley Street specialist. His name was Lionel Logue. Some of you may have heard of that name. 
And he said to King George, he said, I can help you on one condition. He said, you've got to forget everything you've ever learned about speaking. Everything. And I'm going to take you right the way back to the beginning. He said, okay, I'll do it. So he took him right the way back to the beginning. And he said, now say after me, da-da. He said, da-da. He's the king, the king of England, da-da. You know? And, and he, he, he was retrained all over again. You know, in fact, he conquered that speech impediment. I think when he made his first speech, he said, G'day, mate, how's it going? No, no, he didn't. No. I, I actually made that bit up. He didn't say <laughs> just in case if everybody was wondering I'm going to check Ken out there no he didn't say that no. um, I do get checked out by the way <laughs> so the point I want to say is this you know a lot of Christians have been taught wrongly and have a, a servant relationship with God and they never hear the voice of God. They run to people and ask them to tell them what to do. One of my deep concerns is that in Pentecostal church, for about a 10-year period, I never went, I, I, hate, I, I very rarely go to conferences. In fact, I've got a bad name for it in, in our movement because I very rarely go because it's all about leadership. Leadership, leadership, leadership. And they've taken the principles of the world and try to bring it into the church. And Jesus said this, in the world, this is how they do things, but it shall not be so in the kingdom of God. Leadership is by serving. Serving. Amen. Now, um, what was coming out of this sort of mentality and this teaching is that there were, there were two categories, like a them and us. The leaders and the rest. The riffraff, you know? So kind of the haves and the have-nots. And even when you went to conferences, all the front rows were reserved for the pastors and the leaders and the rest of you back there, you know? And kind of, that creates a mentality that some people have a closeness to God. I, I remember being at a conference once where this guy who was the greatest preacher in New Zealand and, and he had the biggest church, but he spoke at a pastor's conference and he said, pastors, you've got to maintain the mystique of the ministry. In other words, let the people think that you've got something they don't have, that you're just a little bit closer to God than they are. That's bad stuff, friends. That is shocking stuff. Because the Bible teaches the priesthood of all believers. You can have more intimacy with God than I have if you choose to do that. Amen? And some of you may have to go right the way back to the beginning and stop relating to God on the basis of servanthood. Stop running to people, asking them, what do I do about this, what do I do about that, what do I do about this, what do I do about that? And ask and expect to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit. And do you know what? God is not concerned so much that you get it right every time. He's more concerned that you have a relationship with him. And sometimes that might mean the process of getting it wrong sometimes. Amen? The psalmist said this. He said, Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity. As long as you walk in what you believe is right, whatever is not of faith is sin. So if you believe that this is what God's saying for you to do, but God will correct you if it's wrong, and he will cover you, there's no condemnation. You know, God's bigger than this. But learn to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you this morning. 
for the word of God. We thank you, Lord, that you saved us, not only that we might not go to hell, but that we might have an intimate relationship with you here on earth. And I pray for every one of us, Lord, that we will learn to hear the voice of the shepherd, the good shepherd, that we will know instinctively when it is him speaking and when it is another voice. Lord, I pray this for each one of us in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you.